Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and before I was known as the Sundance Kid, I was known as the U.S. Film Festival Kid. Wow, that is a that is an obscure reference you brought here to this episode about an obscure movie. Yeah, this is our this is our season. It's interesting. This is our season on the films of 1984, and as we've been saying throughout this season, this is a year full of so many not just big blockbusters, but blockbusters that became these lasting pop culture phenomena. And we've talked about a lot of them. We just did an episode on the Karate Kid. We've got more to come, but. This episode is our Sundance Film Festival episode, and we we have in the past talked about the Grand Jury Prize winner at Sundance. But 1984 is an interesting year for Sundance because it is, is technically the first year of the Sundance Film Festival, although it did exist, as Jason is alluding to, as the U.S. Film Festival previously, and it was kind of rebranded when it, it, it combined with the Sundance Institute. Uh, but this film that we're talking about today is called Old Enough, directed by Marissa Silver, and it won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 1984, but certainly in 1984, Sundance wasn't the juggernaut, it wasn't the force that it is today, and so winning Sundance didn't necessarily carry the same weight as it would now. Sure, and as we talked about in season three, Sex, Lies, and Videotape kind of really broke through as the first Sundance winner to translate into a mainstream must-watch film. But, Josh, what's also interesting about this, I'm sure it did give it light, but what's also interesting is in a year filled with so many teenage movies, for this film to uh, win this award and maybe get a boost, it kind of is, it's a lost film. Like, none of us really knew anything about it, and you don't ever think of it when you think of 80s teen movies. That's true. I mean, it's, it's not a movie that became a big hit. It's uh, it didn't even necessarily get that wide a release, as far as I could tell, in terms of looking for reviews of it and stuff. It's readily available now, which is great. Uh, we were able to watch it. It's on Amazon Prime, and I believe it's on uh, one of the uh, free services as well. And at least on Amazon Prime, the print looked great. I think it was restored at one point for repertory screenings in movie theaters. So it's certainly a movie that's ripe for rediscovery, I would imagine but it did not become a big hit. I couldn't even find any box office info on this movie. And I I found an interview that I think, Jason, that you pointed me to with Marissa Silver, and she was asked if the movie was even released beyond New York City, and she wasn't sure. But it was was not uh, a wide mainstream thing in any way, uh, although it did win that grand jury prize at Sundance. You know what's funny, Josh, is that interview it's through the Tenement Museum in New York City. So they're talking about films shot on the Lower East Side. And she was just seemingly happy, like, yeah, it played. It was, you know, we got a nice run. And, you know, that's what that's what it was like. Uh, and then, you know, we I also referenced 1989, where we talk about Sex Lies, where, of course, we talked about another Sundance winner that uh, kind of fell through the cracks, Josh, which was True Love, uh, another New York story. So interesting little pieces to put together, Dave, here on Not (laughs) Your Podcast. Um, And I think that's that as you referenced that about Marissa Silver, I mean, this is not a movie I'm sure that was made with the anticipation that it would be a big hit. And this was her first feature. She was only 24 years old when she made this movie. So 
if you're 24 and you're making your first feature film for a small budget inspired in part by your own life, and you get into some film festivals and you get a little theatrical release, I mean, I think that's about what anyone would hope for making that kind of movie. Yeah, it's just it just goes to show you in a way just how these film festivals have exploded and how, you know, now a movie like this would just be like, uh, would it even get in without any stars? You know, yes, no, maybe, who knows? Like the life uh, of the film festival has changed, Josh. And let's go to Ira Glass for more on that. <laughs> um, I was sort of surprised that this movie actually was reviewed on Siskel and Ebert on television. So uh, it was on their radar and they were mixed on it. It got a thumbs up from Ebert but a thumbs down from Siskel, who interestingly enough thought it was too phony as a movie about teenagers, which I, I, I think he was maybe off the mark on that. And mm. uh, Roger Ebert accused him of being out of touch with teenage life, which, <laughs> and then of course, it's great to watch these because if then, then of course, Siskel hits right back and says, you're older than me, Roger. And yeah. so- What do you know about the teenagers today? Right, it's really, it's really quite an amusing discussion, but they were, they were split on it. And I couldn't find, I don't know if Ebert had written a review of it. I couldn't find one. Again, this was not that extensively reviewed, but of course it did open in New York City and it was reviewed in the New York Times. Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, Old Enough has been sweetly directed by Miss Silver, who has a better feeling for filmmaking and for adolescent friendships than she does for the class differences on which the story trades. The girls' families have been written, also by Miss Silver, as ethnic stereotypes. Lonnie's parents say unrelated things to each other as the maid serves breakfast. And Karen's father, played by Danny Aiello, sits on the sofa in his undershirt, watching television and drinking beer. Fortunately, the movie is centered on the girls themselves and pays only minimal attention to each one's extraordinary naivete about how the other half lives. And this is a movie about a friendship between two young girls from sort of the opposite sides of the track, so to speak. Although because this is New York City, I think one of the great things about this movie is that the rich girl in her super fancy brownstone and the, the, the sort of working class girl living in this uh, rundown apartment building where her father is the super live like a block away from each other. Right. You're right there, Josh. Uh, it does. It does have uh, some reminiscence of uh, what Daniel LaRusso had to go through when he was going to get Ali, you know, going from Reseda to the Rich Hills. Um, but, you know, not not needing a car because it was just a block away. But, yeah, I, I actually agree with this review. I like Denny Aiello. He's a lot of fun in this movie. But the the um, parents otherwise kind of ring false in one note, like especially that opening scene where it's like, they're not talking to each other, but they're talking through each other and almost, you know, the rich parents. So that, that I think is a fair criticism. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the parents are as well-developed, but I think part of that is because this is a movie about the experiences of, of teenagers who maybe see their parents as one dimensional in a way. And, and part of what happens in this movie is that they start to question that a little and they start to, to delve into what exactly is going on with their parents. So that's I think fair. that's fair. I, I think they do come across as a little one dimensional, but I think it might go uh, sort of along with the themes of the film. Well, the Karen character, especially when she thinks that her father is having an affair with the new tenant, um, you know, has to really look deeper into who her father is and, and you know, what he means to the family. So I think you're you're fair. You're being fair, Josh. And I like that about you. You're fair. Thank you. 
<laughs> I appreciate that. I, I It seems that this movie did open in Canada, uh, at least somewhere in Canada. Gerald Peary in uh, McLean's, which is a Canadian news magazine, said, Old Enough is the first feature by screenwriter-director Marissa Silver, who's 24. She is young enough to render almost adolescence with accuracy and intimacy and without the mist of nostalgia, and she casts her leads adroitly. Nothing greatly consequential happens in the movie, but its, strengths, its strength lies in Silver's keen observation of the girls' telling moments in pre-teenage life, of how time passes when no adults are about. Old Enough could use a few more melancholy moments, some genuine darkness. Still, Silver's first feature is vastly entertaining and an impressive debut. And I would disagree with one thing there is that as I was watching this movie, I was worried that it would go in sort of a stereotypical, like melodramatic dark direction that I feel like we see in too many indie movies these days, or even in the last 20 plus years where they want to use that as sort of a shorthand for this is a serious movie. And that never happened. And I appreciated that about it. Well, we had that moment and uh, we recently had that moment again in eighth grade where an older teenage boy is trying to uh, basically have sex with uh, like an eighth grader. I think she's probably an eighth grade in this movie, too, you know, and that's kind of like the heaviest moment in this film. But um, it stops a lot quicker than the one in eighth grade did, I'd say. Right. And that was definitely a moment where I thought, oh, something really dark is about to happen. And it and it didn't. And I don't think I think that moment where uh, Lonnie, the, the younger rich girl character, is alone with the older brother of Karen, the working class character, and he kind of hits on her a little, but then backs off. I thought that that scene was it felt genuine without having to, like, push too hard on the like darkness of it. So I, I thought that was effective. Finally, in uh, Time Out, in, uh, which uh, does not have bylines on its review, so in a staff review from Time Out, they said, an exceptional delight, this first feature from Joan Micklin Silver's daughter brings together two girls during a hot New York summer. Lonnie, 12, well-behaved, a little innocent, from a wealthy, sophisticated family. And Karen, 14, seemingly more mature, sassy in the knowledge of the streets, handed down from working-class parents and elder brother. Little happens, but with its precise, perceptive observation and performances and wry, gently ironic humor, the whole thing rings remarkably true. So um, that would mean Lonnie's sixth grade, Karen's eighth grade. I thought Karen was older, like 16 or so. Uh, yeah, I think she's meant to be kind of mature beyond her years in a way. But Lonnie does at one point say she's 11 and three quarters, so almost 12. Yeah, uh, wow. But I don't know if they specifically say how old Karen is. But I, I think in multiple uh, references, I saw people saying that she was 14. And I'm not sure how old uh, the actress Rainbow Harvest. Who what a name, Karen. man. What a great name. It is quite oh, yeah. a name. And I love as you're watching, as, or at least as I was watching the, the movie, the opening credits and the way they're laid out, if you didn't know what you were watching. And it starts with the name of uh, Sarah Boyd, who plays Lonnie. And then right in the middle of the screen, it says Rainbow Harvest. And that sounds like it's the title of a movie. It's <laughs> funny you mention that because since we did Wheels on Meals uh, earlier this year, that, you know, what was it, Golden? Was it Golden Harvest or that was the production company? When I first yeah. saw Rainbow Harvest, I thought that was this production company. 
<laughs> yeah, it is quite it is quite a name for uh, for quite an actress, uh, Rainbow Harvest there. But I, I do think regardless of exactly how old the characters are, the difference in their ages, even though they're at a similar place sort of in life, but the difference in their ages is very apparent just in terms of the way they look, the way they dress, the way they act. All of that is, I think, a key element of the story in the way that they uh, interact and the way that their friendship develops. Well, also, like you said, even though it's only a block away, they're living in two different worlds. Karen is definitely much more streetwise and Lonnie lives in a much more protected environment. So there's definitely a more uh, mature nature to the Karen character. Yes, that is true. Um, and also, as that review uh, references, Marissa Silver is the daughter of Joan Micklin Silver, who is not a filmmaker that I was familiar with, but also made some of these kind of gritty New York City movies that were on the independent level and maybe weren't hugely well known at the time that they were released, but have achieved uh, a kind of respect over time. Uh, Crossing Delancey, I think, is the most well known of those. So an interesting New York City art movie heritage going on in this film. Yeah, I I, I uh, noted down that in Hester Street as her two kind of Lower East Side films. I didn't see either of those. Have you? No, I haven't. I think I'd heard of Crossing Delancey, but I really didn't know anything about it. But yeah, it's interesting that that this kind of the, the, the New York City, or I don't know, art world or literary world crossing over here uh, in this in this generational uh, legacy of filmmaking. So I assume, Jason, that you had not seen this or, or even heard of it before we, we got no, to this episode. I didn't know anything about it, Josh. I, I did not either. And, you know, other than us kind of researching it for this, the sake of this episode. Um, and as relates to Sundance, again, as that background goes, it was the U.S. Film Festival for several years and the Sundance Institute, which was connected but, but started separately by Robert Redford, uh, took over the, this film festival, um, which, which started out as more of a kind of showcase of not necessarily new films, but by 1984, the Sundance Institute had had kind of refashioned it into a place to discover new independent films. And that was why this was programmed. So uh, an interesting transitional period there for Sundance, we could say. I was young. I was too young to really care. Yeah, neither neither of us went to Sundance at, at what, four or five years old. No, right? no. It was, it was really a failing on our part. To, Although, to you know who might have in this film? in her debut as the younger sister, Alyssa Milano. And you could tell right off the bat, she, uh, she's got the goods to become a, a TV star, perhaps a daughter of yeah. a Tony Danza character. She does. She definitely gets that bratty little sister down here. And this movie came out just a few months before the debut of Who's the Boss, but it was her, her first role. And as I, actually, as I was watching this, I knew that she was in it. And I think I hadn't like in my mind done the right kind of calculation. And I was for some reason expecting her to show up as one of the teenage characters. And so I didn't even notice it first until at one point she does some kind of look or something in the camera. And I thought, oh my God, that's Alyssa Milano as this little kid because that's how young she was at the time. Yeah, I knew right away when I yelled at the screen, Samantha! And then she just never- <laughs> Thank goodness we got that impression in. So um, any other background on this one you'd like to mention? Uh, I, I, you know- like you said, Mar Marissa Silver was 23 when she made this movie. Pretty cool. Um, we mentioned Danny Aiello, and, which I like. And uh, no, we're good. I'm good on the background here, Josh. All right. Well, then we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Old Enough.
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we are talking about the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner, Old Enough, the first ever winner of Sundance uh, via sort of technicalities, but still pretty cool. And as, Jason, as you mentioned, just sort of by chance because of the years that we've covered, it, we've, we've, we've talked about a couple of relatively obscure Sundance winners. You mentioned uh, Nancy Savoka's True Love that we talked about from 1989. We also talked about Tom Noonan's film, What Happened Was, in 1994. And uh, so it's interesting to see these films that have won these major film festivals but didn't necessarily go on to become major films. And I think all three of these have been kind of fun discoveries. Um, I, I think, Jason, maybe you didn't like this movie quite as much as I did, though. I think so. You're probably right. Also, Josh, all three of those New York stories and New York movies, you know, so that's kind yes. of interesting. Uh, I didn't dislike it. Maybe I wanted a little more to happen. And by, you know, it's an it's a clean hour and a half by an hour in. I was like, OK, I, I get it, you know, and uh, and then, like you said, nothing really happens beyond that. Um, the beginning where we have this Lonnie character kind of walking around and seeing these kids jump off the top of like uh, a chain link fence onto a mattress. I really like that kind of hijinks aspect. And I wanted to see more neighborhoody stuff. And uh, it made me think back also to another movie we talked about, Do the Right Thing, which I think really, really uh, showcases what a neighborhood in New York is. And I think with this movie, it started as a neighborhood thing and it just kind of uh, narrow casted into the relationship between these two girls. And then it kind of moved out into what Karen's family life is. And, uh, you know, that kind of lost a little focus there for me. Yeah, maybe a little. I was surprised where at, at a certain point. I mean, these these two girls are really the main characters. And and like you said, it it it's a depiction of New York City, of a particular neighborhood in New York at a particular time. But it really is about the friendship between these two girls who come from these different worlds. And the first time I think the movie shifts and we have a scene where neither of those characters are in it. And we see Karen's Karen's older brother who's uh, attempting to seduce their new neighbor upstairs, the the hot older woman. Carla. There you go. And and we get a whole scene between the two of them without the the main girls. I did feel like, okay, this has maybe gone a little beyond what the scope of the story is or what interests me about the story. And I think it comes back around and it ultimately is important as an aspect of how Karen ha the Karen's relationship with her brother and how she sees her father, as we mentioned before, who she suspects is having an affair with this neighbor when it turns out to be her brother having the affair. Uh, and it goes to the relationship between the two girls and their friendship too. But it did seem like it maybe was a little outside of what was interesting about the story. I agree with you. The older brother's name, Johnny, uh, just to get that out there. I also think, and I've talked about this in other movies, like when we're seeing a film almost, not almost, but exclusively through the perspective of one character, and then like 45 minutes to an hour in, we see a completely different character, you know, at, without our main character, like as the, you know, protagonist or point of view of the scene, like it takes me out of it because there's nothing there to it. And it's not like we're now following this new story. It was just like, hey, we're going to do this because we want to impart information about these two characters. But I thought that information could have been imparted 
without that scene. You know, we could have seen Johnny flirt with Carla on the street, and then we could have seen uh, the two girls find that tool belt that they find, which is why Karen thinks it's her dad who's having the affair. And I thought that would have been just as effective. Yeah, I agree. I think that maybe, and, and this maybe goes to someone who's who's young and inexperienced and is making her first film and is maybe not trusting the audience to make every connection without having to make it herself in the film. But I think it's also weird because there's, at the beginning of the movie, and we start with Lonnie, the rich girl, and we see her life in her fancy house, and she's getting ready to go to her day camp. And as you say, she, she walks by these neighborhood kids who are playing this ridiculous, very... New York street seeming game where they jump off a fence onto a mattress and then she passes them by and she goes to her bus and she goes off to camp. And then we follow Karen coming home from being around those kids. And Karen, of course, becomes an essential part of the story. And I thought that was really effective where you realize, oh, this story is as much about her as it is about Lonnie, as we kind of assumed from the beginning of the movie. And so she does that really well. And then it's a shame that she kind of stumbles on it when she tries that again a little, maybe with the brother later in the movie. Yeah, I think we needed to see the story through those two points of view throughout. Either one would have been fine. Um, you know, we do see, we, we mentioned Alyssa Milano's character, Diane. We do see a scene of her like kind of spying through the window, seeing Lonnie skip going to camp. But we're still seeing Lonnie at that point. So that kind of works. And then we kind of have their resolution when those two talk about it. I just think we don't see those and it has nothing to do with the actors or the writing. It just like we're in their story. Everything needs to happen through one of those two. Or like we said, it does just kind of remove us from, you know, the overall picture, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. But I think there was a lot in their story between these two characters and their friendship and the way they have to learn about each other. And as one of those reviews mentions, they do seem almost absurdly naive about the life of the other person on both levels. I mean, you think of the rich girl as being sheltered, but, and she doesn't seem to understand what Catholicism is, but at the same time, Karen, the, the working class girl is sheltered in her own way. And she doesn't seem to understand that, for example, that anyone would not be Catholic or that anyone would not go to Catholic school. And so there were moments I think where it, it seemed like she, Marissa Silver was maybe pushing too hard on the idea that they so don't understand each other. But I think on an emotional level, on just the level of these two people connecting and where they are in their lives and their development, you know, in terms of their their adolescence, I thought was really effective. The acting is really good from two actors that, you know, maybe we'll talk more about later who really didn't go on to do any kind have any kind of acting career. Um, but they feel very natural. And maybe that's partly because. They didn't have much experience coming into this movie and they were able to bring their own teenage selves to the roles. So I liked that about it. I, it felt real and it had a lot of moments I thought that captured that, that rush of friendship of meeting someone, you know, haphazardly. And it's, it's this summer that's kind of limbo in between school years and you're able to just go off and explore that new friendship. Um, so I liked that about it. I like the central relationship. Yeah, and in general, you and I both like those types of movies where it's, um, you know, exploring a friendship and uh, especially in the summer where it seems like anything is possible, right? But I agree with you. I liked both of these actresses. I thought they were very natural and I would have been happy to see more from either of them, you know, uh, going forward. What you're talking about um, as far as them showing each other their worlds, two effective scenes, I think, are when. Karen takes 
Lonnie to confession. And, you know, she kind of learns about that. And then the two of them, you know, even though they're growing up, they have this very innocent game where they're having like an invisible dinner party together. And Karen's like, well, I just want a steak, you know? And Lonnie's like, no, we're having white wine. We'll have duck with that. And she, you know, it just kind of shows the differences of, you know, living one block away from each other. And I thought both those scenes were done really well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I especially like that dinner scene where I think it's, it, it's, an, it's an innovative way to show not only the differences between them, but like you say, the fact that they're not grownups yet. They're still play acting at a lot of these things when they, and they, before that, they're, they're walking through the empty apartment in Karen's building and they're pretending as if they're prospective tenants and that they're, they're going to rent the apartment and talking about that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, that scene is really good. I think is one of the best moments in the movie. And, and that scene is one of the moments that to me indicated a certain amount of, of queer or lesbian subtext to this relationship. And I don't know if, if that struck you that way or not, but to me, I, I watching this movie, I thought if this movie wasn't from 1984, that that we would have them uh, kind of explore that a little more in their relationship. You think so at that young of an age? I mean, that's the age when you explore that stuff. And obviously they're both exploring the idea of, uh, of being attracted to boys. You know, Lonnie is maybe a little overwhelmed by her attentions from Karen's brother, but she seems to be intrigued by it. And, and Karen, when they go to the fancy dance, uh, that Lonnie takes her to at, at the, I don't know if it's like a country club or some sort of cotillion. Um, but you know, Karen is kind of trying to hook up with some boy who is, uh, she's tries to find the most bad boy potential. I think at that fancy dance, the kid who's spitting ice in his drink <laughs> and, you know, she's trying to, to, to kind of pick him up and she fails. But, but I think if they're exploring that, there's no reason why they wouldn't be exploring those feelings in general. Yeah. I didn't get that, but as we've seen in past episodes, you think everything has queer undertones and I think nothing does. So yeah. <laughs> I think we're probably, we got to meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah, right? so, there you go. There um, you go. You know, that sequence that you mentioned where they go to this dance and like uh, they're doing waltzes and, you know, all these. Uh, and the band leader goes, everybody knows how to do the waltz or whatever he says. Like, I, I thought that was a really good sequence. And it also showed, because Lonnie is always the fish out of water in the Karen neighborhood. It also showed what a fish out of water Karen can be. So, yeah, I thought it was nice to see both sides of that fish out of water. Yeah, and I think that is is one of the things that the movie is is emphasizing is that they're each, like I said, they're each sort of sheltered in their own ways and they don't understand the, the broad way that the world works on the, the whole spectrum of, of, uh, of life and of class differences. And, and that also shows another moment that I really liked that is a very New York City thing is that when they're they're tailing uh, Carla, the older woman that they're very intrigued by, and they're trying to follow her and find out where she works and they're following her. And at a certain point, they come to one of these, you know, invisible borders of neighborhoods in New York City. And they're about to walk into what I think to me looked like a sort of like a Puerto Rican neighborhood, I think. Yeah, I think and, so. And Karen is like, we can't go there. That is not okay. And she immediately realizes that. And Lonnie doesn't. And she goes and uh, follows Carla all the way to work. But I thought that was a great New York City thing of that, that sense of like, where is okay to be and where is not okay to be. And again, just walking a few blocks takes you in this, into this whole different world. Um, and yet Carla, who lives 
on the Lower East Side where uh, where Karen lives in that same building is fully confident and able to traverse between those two worlds. No, Lonnie goes in the two worlds. Oh, Carla, you mean. What, what okay, I was just saying, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, Lonnie does go. Right. Yeah, no, so, and and yeah, Josh, that brought, that brought back also memories to me of Do the Right Thing uh, with Radio Rahim having that boombox battle. And also some of the neighborhood stuff we saw in Saturday Night Fever, you know, so... I thought that was good. I I thought all that was good. I thought the acting was good in this thing. I just, from a story standpoint, I didn't, you know, it just, it just kind of plateaued for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. And I think there are some story beats that get repeated here. I mean, the idea that they have these fights and then they make up right away. And I think that's realistic to teenage friendship and especially teen girl friendship. But it did feel like it was kind of going in circles at a certain point with their friendship where they have a big falling out, but then they reconcile and then they have it again. But so, but I, I, again, I think I thought it was genuine. And I think that if it had tried to go something bigger and darker and, and more melodramatic that it would have lost me. So I liked that. I think there are a lot of nice little details. One thing I really liked is that after, uh, Lonnie gives this pearl necklace that she has in her room that she got as a gift that she clearly doesn't seem to think is a big deal, but Karen is just amazed that she has a genuine pearl necklace. And so she gives it to Karen. And then literally in every scene from that point on, Karen is wearing that necklace, regardless of whether they're fighting, they have a falling out. And I think that little detail just shows like how important that friendship is to her. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice. And um, at the end, when they've kind of had their blow up and uh, we get a interest, you know, it's the beginning of the school year, we get a fair resolution on that, you know? Yeah, I think it's nice. It's not on the nose, but you get a sense that, hey, they still like each other. They still care about each other. And even though they're going to these different schools, they'll still be able to hang out and that friendship will grow and will deepen. So yeah, I, I liked that about it. That Karen character, you know, we talk about, I mentioned true love. Like I thought she could have fit in in a few years perfectly in that kind of setting. And she kind of, Rainbow Harvest has that Annabella Scuria type of, you know, um, uniqueness to her. She does. I mean, every everything that I read uh, compares her to Winona Ryder, and she certainly looks a lot sure. like Winona Ryder. But mm-hmm. but I think you're right in that in terms of her her uh, sort of the her demeanor and the way she carries herself, she very much has that Annabella Shiora kind of aspect to her. I wanted to bring Dave in because man, musically, this I think even more than like Streets of Fire is the most synth heavy soundtrack we've heard on Awesome Movie Year. It's all kind of drum beats from a synth. And uh, yeah. I thought it was so effective on this thing. Really? See, that's weird because I was about to say the one thing that I liked least about this movie was the score. I found it really annoying. I think it was very of the moment. I do love a good synth score, but yeah, it was a little much at times. I thought it was just like so just weird and I didn't think quite fit exactly. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do love good synth scores though and and it's it's fun to it's fun to like go back to movies like this and hear them which you know you never hear them anymore right when i think that might have been one of the things that a movie like this right now would never have a synth score and maybe that was so prevalent that was just like what you put in your movie in 1984 and so they did it but i just i didn't think it really worked i I, I think i kind of liked that it it did feel a little out of place but because these girls are both out of place in each other's worlds you know so i liked it but i can see how you guys would have wanted a little variety yeah, it just felt very repetitive. And I don't know if it was the synth aspect or maybe they're just using the same themes over and over again. I mean, it's a small indie movie. Maybe they could only afford to have the composer write a handful of pieces that they had mm. to reuse. I don't know. 
Um, but yeah, that was uh, to me. I, I it didn't quite it didn't quite work. So I, I also want to mention the crop tops. I, I don't know that just the, the the amount of crop tops in this movie was on the boys and the girls was just astonishing. Uh, I'm all for 80s fashion, Josh. Yeah. I don't really have any other observations other than there were a lot of crop tops in this movie. And I guess maybe if you lived in New York in the 80s, during the summer, it's hot. Most people it's don't have hot. air conditioning. Yeah. And they're, and it's, you know, it's a vertical city. Everyone's so close together, man. Come on. You know, it's humid. Yeah. I guess you got to let your torso breathe. That's how it works. I, mm -hmm. I want to let mine breathe right now. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, so Dave, aside from the score, did you like this movie? I actually really liked it. Um, I, I, I thought it was a really interesting movie. And I, I like the idea of following around two people who absolutely do not have any, you know, idea of the world. Like they're, they're just, they're pretty lost. I think both of them and they're not really teaching each other anything, but they are building a friendship. And so there's still value to that. And I don't know. I just, I just thought it was a, uh, a fun, interesting little movie, even though it's it's kind of like got a little bit of a dark undercurrent to it, which I also like. And I just think the performances are great between these two uh, girls. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, it does have a dark undercurrent, but I like that it was just the undercurrent. I like that it, yeah. didn't, it didn't bubble over into something mm -hmm. more hey, intense. You know, one thing I liked about it with the Lonnie character is obviously Karen is the dominant character of the two of those, but Lonnie stands up for herself pretty much against everyone in this movie. And it's it's a really interesting character trait because, you know, she's the rich girl who doesn't fit in uh, with the rest of them. And, you know, she kind of takes a back seat. Oh, you want to do this? You want to play stickball? You want to? And she always does. But like, she's not afraid to slap a bitch, too. <laughs> that is true. And of course, as we said, she's the one who's not afraid to walk into that Puerto Rican neighborhood. And when she realizes she may have made a mistake and she's being uh, kind of harassed by these guys on the street, she's resourceful enough to duck into this uh, random bodega and buy a banana, I think it was, and yep, you know, yep. wait, the, wait them out. And then she gets back and then, you know, she's like telling Karen, hey, I, I did what you couldn't do. I went and I found out what Carla's up to, so. And it's funny how much that gossip at that age, at, you know, 12 and 14, finding out what this new mysterious woman in the building does, like, it's funny how much that means to them. Right. And I think that's part of the charm of this movie is that those little things are what they latch onto. And, you know, whether it's that or whether it's random things about Catholicism or uh, Lonnie talking to her mom about her, her spinster aunt who's never been married, which is another great scene toward the end. That is a good scene. And, and those are good actors, man. The parents, I mean, they cast like a lot of good New York actors in there. Yeah, and we mentioned that the parents are maybe a bit one-dimensional as characters, but I think those actors add something there that 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 brings them beyond being one-dimensional. Um, of course, I mean, Danny Aiello is the one who's well-known and is is great and has played that exact kind of character many, many, many times. Um, but he gives you exactly what you need out of it. I think it's like, they're like, hey, Danny, you still got that uh, muscle tea? You still got that uh, <laughs> muscle tea? And he's like, of course I got it. And it's like, okay, put it on. You're in the movie. So, but he, but you're right, Josh. He always delivers, right? Like, yeah, he always delivers. Yeah, so. He does. And that character, I mean, there is a bit of shade where you think he's going to be this abusive guy. And he's definitely not a great dad. And he, he, but he doesn't, he doesn't always do exactly what you expect there. I mean, he's a little, he's too forceful. He grabs the kids, but he's not slapping them around. And, and I don't know. I mean, I suppose that's that faint praise to give somebody that they didn't. No, I mean, it's a different generation. Child. 
yeah. different generation, short tempered Italian. Like, I, you know, I think, like we said, Dave and I grew up with a lot of uh, people like that. But I mean, um, his nature wasn't bad, right? Like, you know, like you said, like he was he was um, uh, strict, but I don't think he overdid it. Right. And he also has a nice little quiet moment when the son is getting the tool belt to go really to go have sex with the neighbor. But uh, the dad thinks he's using it to take initiative to help out with fixing stuff around the building. And he says, oh, so you're going to follow in your old man's footsteps? And the kid's like, yeah, sure. And he says, do me a favor. Don't. And you get a lot just in that one line of what he hopes for his children and how he feels about where his life went. Yeah. Yeah. And like we said in uh, True Love, it's like, what are the other options for, for, you know, people who grow up in the neighborhood and uh, see everyone who's grown up in the neighborhood staying in the neighborhood, maybe not have other options to get out, right? Yeah, and that was a theme in Saturday Night Fever as well. I think that's a common thing in these these working class New York City movies. Um, and it's uh, it's done well here with a slightly different perspective. So, yeah, I like this one. Do we want to rate it out of uh... five Alyssa Milano's? Yes, that's so many Alyssa Milano's. Yeah. No, you can, what, what do you would, want to rate it out of, Josh? What would the world do with five Alyssa Milano's? I was going to say crop tops, but maybe I'm a little too focused on those. No, we can go with crop tops. Uh, right. I gave it two and a half, and it's like a two and a half. Like, yeah, you should watch it, but I wouldn't expect too much because, like I said, like it just kind of peters for me. I know you're probably going to give it more, and I'm cool with that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to give it a three out of five. I, I I do think it's uneven, but I think there's enough there that it's worth checking out. It's a it's kind of an underrated gem. So, uh, Dave, how do you want to rate this? I'm going with three and a half, actually. Ooh, I, I really right. enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, we will then come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of old enough. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner, Old Enough, by Marissa Silver. And to me, what's really interesting about the legacy of this movie is that really the major kind of creative uh, forces here, Marissa Silver, the writer-director, and the two stars, Rainbow Harvest and Sarah Boyd, all kind of left the movie business pretty soon after this or rather left what they were doing, they shifted into a sort of a different focus from what they did on this film. Yeah, Marissa Silver married Ken Quapis, who is a pretty well-known director, you know, Um, and she transitioned into a short story and novel writer. And in fact, Josh, uh, was a recipient of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship of Fiction. No, that's pretty good. Yeah, that is good. You could read her books like Babe in Paradise or Little Nothing, if you'd like. Sarah Boyd, who played Lonnie, is now an editor and does some directing. So that's pretty cool. And Rainbow Harvest, I don't know what she does. Do you? Yeah, it's well, I mean, it's interesting. I only know, um, I mean, she she has a few more acting credits, uh, but after 1991, she stopped acting. And I loved this this line. So there's a couple of different bios for her on IMDb. And who knows? who wrote these or where they get their information. But I love this one that starts says, little is known about the lovely actress who appeared in films from the mid 1980s to the early 1990s. Many are surprised to know that her real name is indeed Rainbow Harvest. So uh, we know that about her, I guess. I keep her in my basement. The more I find out, (laughs) the more I will let you know. Time to feed her. 
<laughs> it's such a weird tone. Uh, but then the, there's the, the other bio claims that in, since 2003, she's worked for the Otis Elevator Company. But I doing what? I don't know. And I just am imagining like middle-aged Rainbow Harvest with like the tool belt from this movie fixing an elevator. And I think that's great. I hope that's true. Unless she's like a quote unquote elevator man, right? Who I like the fancy buildings was like, what floor do you need? You know, and she just pushes yeah, right. the buttons for people and rides the elevator all day. That'd be fun. Yeah, we've talked about Alyssa Milano, obviously the most well-known uh, along with Danny Aiello. But uh, Fran Brill, you know, I love I liked her in being there. She's in Sesame Street. She plays Lonnie's mom. And of course, Jerry Bamman, who plays Lonnie's dad, Uncle Frank in Home Alone, baby. Yeah, I I knew like his face because there's there's shots of him in Home Alone where he's like right in Macaulay Culkin's face and he's really close to the camera, I think. And so you his face very uh yeah very indelible. He does a very good annoying uncle in that film. That he does. So and I think you you underrated Sarah Boyd a little. Like she works on every popular TV show, like broadcast TV show. And streaming and, and everything. And as an editor and a director, she was just a director on the most recent season of The Boys on Amazon, which is a hugely popular show. Yeah, she's doing great. Yeah. So and she only acted in one more movie after this before transitioning to do a behind the scenes kind of thing. I think also, and we've talked about this with Sundance, you know, that, that this even being so early on, this really feels like a Sundancey movie. You know, maybe it didn't go on to become very popular, but it, it, it feels like the kind of indie movie that you expect to see at Sunday. Yeah. Hey, Josh, real fast. Let me just uh, say uh, one sad thing. Sarah Kingsley, who played um, Karen's mom, died a month before this movie was released. She was killed in the car accident, I think. Oh, wow. So that's sad. That is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Very hmm. sad. Um, now, not uh, without any transition at all. I'll get back to your point. Um, Thank you. It does feel like what was a Sundance movie. Does it feel like it's a Sundance movie today? I don't know anymore because it's become such a, you know, big Hollywood festival, right? Like this feels like those classic, you know, everything through clerks and everything like that. But I don't know if this is a Sundance movie anymore. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of more of the like 90s and early 2000s uh, type of stuff that come, came out of Sundance. But I just thought it was interesting that even in these earliest days of that festival, uh, we see a kind of a template for what they like to promote as, as far as films go. And not just that, like, dude, there's such a rich independent film movement uh, in New York in the 80s and early. I mean, obviously all the time, but 80s through mid 90s. Like, I love discovering these movies. Yeah, I mean, again, I think regardless of, of whether we loved this movie, like there's enough really interesting stuff that it's a, it's a great discovery to make. And it has been discovered, especially in New York City. You mentioned that showcase that it had at the Tenement Museum. Um, that was in 2014. And it's it was restored at one point, I think uh, just a couple years ago with a new 35 millimeter print that's been shown at some uh, repertory houses in New York City. And you mentioned eighth grade. And uh, when this movie was shown in uh, 2018 at the Metrograph in New York City, it was introduced by Bo Burnham, writer, director of eighth grade. Whoa, I didn't know that. I just connected it on my own. What? Uh, yeah, <laughs> blowing your mind there. But I mean, I think that's a that's a reasonable connection. Like you connected it because it makes sense that there's, I could definitely see Bo Burnham having discovered this movie and taken some influence from it when he was making eighth grade. Yeah. And that's a good movie that we recommend here on Awesome Movie Year. 
that is a good movie. Definitely. I mean, one that people probably know about more so than this. But if you haven't seen Eighth Grade, see that and then see Old Enough and see if you can make those connections. Yeah. See all the movies we mentioned today. Dave, see every movie. Give them the list. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a list right here. I, I was just going to say, I actually really do think this reminds me a lot of the things that we see out of Sundance and other similarly sized festivals. I mean, it, it, this feels like this feels like, you know, when when like critics come out with their end of year top 10 list, this is like the movie that you haven't heard of until you see that list. You know, this is what this feels like. You know, I'll tell you another one that was a festival darling and uh, was from maybe seven or eight years ago about, uh, you know, boys and girls growing up around this time. Kings of Summer, which I thought was a really good movie. It kind of had that kind of tonally for me as well when that sense of discovery and wonder and like anything goes during the summer. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a wider range of kinds of movies at festivals and at Sundance now, but this still does feel like very festivaly, even with the way things go now. I didn't say it's not festivaly. I just feel like what we're getting in Sundance now are stars, bigger movies and deals that are already done before the movies come out for the most part, you know? Yeah. Maybe if you had to make this movie now, you'd need a big, a bigger star to play like uh, one of the adult characters or something in order to get it, the attention that you want, uh, which is a shame because you don't, you don't, shouldn't have to happen. Yeah. I wonder in 84, cause like, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us think Danny Aiello was really like, you know, became famous or became very well known with do the right thing. But like we said, Danny Aiello and Alyssa Milano, they were both very famous. So, you know. Well, yeah, but at the time that this movie was made, Alyssa Milano was not famous. I mean, she had never been in anything, so um, she only became famous afterwards. Samantha! <laughs> On that note, that's old enough, and that's this episode <laughs> of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Let's replace that website. Uh, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com. That's a good one. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. We love all the feedback. Thank you, Algeria. <laughs> I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on, on uh, Twitter. I just almost said Instagram. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Follow me on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Hey, Josh, it's the Academy Award winner for Best Feature Film. And that is called Amadeus. And Josh, here's a spoiler. I've never seen it before. Oh, double spoiler. I have seen it before. What could happen? Dave, next time. have you seen it? I think I saw it in class. Uh, you're uh, not helping the spoilers, Dave. So much to look forward to. So tune in next time for Amadeus. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Angela! <laughs> <laughs>